0: Hello and welcome to the show. Why do some families thrive when others fall apart? At the start of the pandemic, psychotherapist Julia Samuel joined us with advice for finding strength in times of crisis, and she recently returned to Explore Every Family Has a Story, her new book analysing the influence of our families on our health and happiness. She was in conversation with Hannah McInnes.
1: You say in the book, humans learn through stories. And of course, the title is Every Family Has a Story. But at the same time, those stories are so wide ranging and so particular to each family, as are the stories in the book. But this is a book that speaks to everyone, as I see it. So were you conscious of writing it for a particular reader? Or or did you feel that you were writing for anyone or for everyone?
2: I really felt... I was writing for everyone because I do think when we are most kind of open and most personal, when we express the difficulties we face and, and our own stories, and these are different stories, as you say, from a gay couple adopting to a family who had a, a death by suicide forty years before, or a uh, ultra orthodox Jewish family whose the, the great grandmother was um, a Holocaust survivor. The thing that connects them all is the stories that they tell themselves is the person they become. And what they discovered with me by listening to each other, because I work with multi-generations, that they could expand their story of the family that they were by understanding each other more broadly. And what they also discovered, which I think will connect with everybody, is that when they were facing difficult questions, rather than saying to themselves, what's wrong with me? Why am I failing? Am I normal? What we looked at was we asked them to kind of look up and look and see the stories of the generations before them. And what are the patterns of behavior? What are the ways? So often in behavioral patterns that get passed down generationally, it's the the defences you use to block the pain of, say, someone's death or losing a job or fighting in a war, it's the defences you use that you then model that get passed down from generation to generation. But also now we know that they get passed down epigenetically so that how the genes are expressed come through the womb. So that when people could look and learn the secrets or the ways of behaving from the past, it helped them understand themselves better and feel more connected to themselves and and had kind of stronger bonds with each other because they had a clearer narrative, a fuller narrative, a more where the emotion and the story fitted together.
1: Was there a sense of catharsis for you in writing it? Because it's a very personal. There's a lot of it's very personal. So I wonder if there was anything you worked out for yourself. You say at the end it it, it helps you think differently about your own relationship with your family.
2: I definitely because I think particularly because of the multi generation aspect. So you know, my parents were, were quite kind of old fashioned parents, but they had also had a lot of loss. So my mum was an orphan by the time she was 25. Her father, her brother and her sister and her mother all had all died. And I was brought up in a family that, you know, about grief, it was like forget and move on. What you don't think about and what you don't talk about isn't going to hurt you. And So that was a kind of environment that fermented me to be a therapist because I was always trying to match up what I was seeing with what I was feeling and what I couldn't make sense of. And so then I became always more interested in what people were really feeling internally rather than what they were showing. And through the stories of all these different families, I had a much greater compassion for my parents. That, like all of us, I think, is anyone watching, I think my parents were really doing the best they could with what they knew and what they understood at the time. And they didn't know any different. They didn't have an emotional lexicon. They didn't have emotional intelligence or any of the knowledge that we now have, you know, at our beck and call. So I felt more loving and kind of softer towards them. I mean, they're both dead. So it was only in my, you know, but parents live on in you, the, your significant relationships, your love and your hate for them lives on in you long after they've died. So I, f- I feel closer to them, which is a lovely thing.
1: I want to come back to so much of that, but just to sort of um, isolate why you chose families perhaps. When I mean, you say families, again, I think nods of recognition from everyone. And if there aren't, then I, I think they must be killing themselves. Families are messy, <laughs> chaotic and imperfect and you say you're fascinated by families and always drawn to work with families. And I just wondered why specifically you chose the family as your project?
2: I mean, for many reasons. One is for you know the last 30 years, anyone who's walked through my door, whatever their presenting issue, they've spent huge tracts of time looking at the family of origin or the family that they're making, trying to make sense of them, trying to understand themselves, trying to understand why they fragmented in adversity or or what they can do in order to thrive through adversity, kind of, you know, wanting to make sense of them. But also, you know, love is what matters most and love in families as the underpinning reliable resource in families is what matters in all of its forms, you know, overtly expressed by moving in, by stepping out, by moving towards and through rupture and repair. And I wanted to understand how love can get translated within a family into resilience and robustness to weather the difficulties in families. Because as I said, families are are never perfect and they're always on a kind of spectrum of functional and dysfunctional, depending what's happening internally or externally. But the thing, that they need most and actually gives them resilience and robustness is the feeling of safety and connection with each other when they face difficult challenges, that your family is the bedrock of your life. And I wanted to hear different family stories of how they could find that for themselves and how they could maybe even rebuild and connect and have that for themselves like the Rossi family whose dad died from suicide, when there was so much rupture. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. and and before we go into other questions, perhaps you could explain to people how on a practical level you came across the eight families and chose those eight families or, or they came to you, just how that process worked.
2: So some of them were already in my client caseload and I asked to work with their whole family. So they already had a presenting issue, like there was a family whose child had died um, five years before. They were an Afro-Caribbean family of origin. And so I worked with the grandmother, the son and his partner and their stepson and their little daughter, because when their daughter had died, there had been a lot of rupture with their siblings between the both sides of the siblings. So um, I worked with them. Others, I... the uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish family. I put a notice up on a website asking if family wanted to work with me and got this amazing family of five generations. And she was a Holocaust survivor. And looked, I expected to see trauma kind of passing down through the family's transgenerational trauma. And it isn't actually what I saw. So that was really interesting. And then there was Archie Craig who had a terminal diagnosis, he had a brain tumour. And I, I went to the Maggie centres and they gave me him. And I worked with his whole family about him dying and how he had to cut off his relationship with his mother because that was very damaging. And so basically what I felt in all of these families, they are extraordinary families because families are extraordinary, but they were actually ordinary families. And I think anyone uh, who reads the book will see themselves in many aspects of all of the different stories, even though they come from maybe entirely different backgrounds. Mm
1: Um, you say that um, you believe the wisdom gleaned by clients and therapists in the secrecy of the therapy room has for too long been an untouched value, your words of resource to everyone. And that's the purpose of this book. And I, I just wanted to sort of ask you about that because even though we have moved on as a society and we'll discuss that, there is still a sort of a stigma or a kind of behind doors idea of therapy. And I just wondered how important it is for you to kind of challenge that culture. In other cultures, everybody welcomes therapy. And to me, it feels like in these families, these eight families, they're already a lot further along the sort of restorative and repairing route, just in being prepared to kind of discuss these issues with you, which so many families, I think, would still be very uncomfortable and find very difficult. I mean, as you say, it's a daunting thing to do.
2: I think one of the kind of natural, and I actually don't think there's any country that doesn't have some kind of stigma or fear of therapy. I mean, I think America is thought of as the leading country that, for therapists, but I, I think there are vast numbers of Americans who would never go anywhere close to a therapist. And I think the resistance and the sort of shame about it is this fear that if you show what you're really feeling, that it's somehow weakness but also this fear that if you let yourself fully feel everything that you're going to be floored by it that you will be overwhelmed by your sadness or that you will look at yourself and go oh my god <laughs> i have so much rage and i'm jealous and i'm um kind of scared and that you don't want to face what you're feeling and you know, my understanding as a, as a therapist and as a client is that what you don't face, you can't adapt and change. You can't fix it. And so by bringing these stories out and kind of opening the therapist's door, I wanted to show that, A, there isn't any kind of awful, you know, weird voodoo stuff that goes on in the therapy room. It is just a group of people talking <laughs> and feeling stuff and that I can't read into people's minds, and that I'm human. But there is something about saying it, naming it, acknowledging it, being fully heard, that changes how you are internally, and as families, changes the family system. Because emotions are transmitters of information. They are meant to be transmitted, to be named so that you can release them and then have another way of feeling or another understanding. And it's what we do, as I said earlier, to block the pain, to block the emotions. That is the thing, you know, self-medication, the busyness with alcohol, with drugs, with, you know, gambling, sex, any of the things that we use, food, biscuits. I use biscuits Um, (laughs) that does us harm and often does us harm over generations. The, The difficulty, the other side of that, which a therapist would have a a kind of legitimate fight with me, is that in making myself public and putting myself out there, like in this webinar, I'm not the screen that a client would then come to and not know me. And I think there is a difficulty with that for me personally and my client caseload is that. Normally, because you know, always my intention and the work is on my clients. But me having, you know, being written about and doing webinars, people know more about me than they would normally or therapists. And I think that is a bit of a problem. And actually, some clients have left because of it.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I was going to talk about your personal way you interact with the clients, which you're very open about, but not in that way. It doesn't seem a problem. It sort of feels very liberating. I mean, you talk, and I'm sure many therapists would relate to it. And I wouldn't know about often very physical feelings you have, the swirl of his storm in my stomach and a tightness. And I wondered about that balance where you have to maintain a distance and how much you take back with you and how much you kind of also enable yourself to be present and warm and compassionate towards them because they have to be um, equally balanced, those two things.
2: I mean, I I don't think there's ever balance, truth be told. (laughs) You know, we're looking for balance in our schedules. We're looking for balance in our relationships. We're looking for balance. And we do want homeostasis. We do want balance. And we need to have mechanisms to balance ourselves. But just to say, I think it's a concept it's something that we aim for and, and rarely have but for my relationship with them my model is that I'm I'm person-centered so I offer you know an authentic and empathic and a an non-judgmental place where I believe that I create a relationship where I facilitate them to work out for themselves what is in their best interests and that they go at their own pace and I am inevitably impacted by it. But I use those emotions to build a relationship, to feed back to them that you're having this, you're, this emotional intelligence is telling me this about you. You know, I'm noticing that I feel kind of furious or confused. Is that what's going on for you? So to use it to expand their own understanding. But I the kind of model for it is that I keep I have a foot in their world and a foot in my world so I can move towards them with impact you know with empathy and I, also I can step back and then I have boundaries that you know when the session ends it may be swirling around in me and I have tons of things that I do like kickboxing and supervision and um, meditating and going for walks and all the stuff that I do that balances me. And fundamentally, I know that that is their story. It isn't my story. But also because I worked in the NHS for 25 years and I heard thousands of stories of children dying, I can't not know that. I can't not be affected by it. And so I am more kind of hyper-reactive about, say, my grandchildren. which drives my children insane because, you know, I chop grapes in t- very, very small. <laughs> I grip I their hand walking down the street. I'm holding my breath when they're on their bicycles, so, And it is so annoying for my children who are much more confident about things.
1: I mean, you talk about, you, you mentioned, just to, to talk about those small things which don't turn out to be small. So you, you say um, you have kickboxing and you talked about people reverting to things like food. But something that comes through the book in all the stories, and I remember talking to you about it in your last book, is... That actually, sometimes these tools are the most simple things that facilitate really important change and release and repair. And I wonder if you could, you know, we, we always come back to exercise, but things like that are still so important, aren't they?
2: Unbelievably important. So the the physiology of it is that all of I'm sure everybody listening, and I wish I could see your faces, is that we are we were born for evolutionary purposes, with a negative bias. So we're born with this polyvagal system that goes into fight, flight, and freeze when we feel under threat. And all of us individually from our upbringing, from our genetics, from our experiences, will have a level of sensitivity to the events that are happening. But they will transmit these emotions in our bodies. And through the transmission of the emotions comes what you're telling yourself. So you may kind of suddenly feel a little bit anxious and, you're, and you may tell yourself, oh my God, I'm gonna fail. Or I'm gonna be an idiot in this webinar. I'm not gonna be able to find my words. And so you've turned on your fight, flight or freeze system, the code red, which is the amygdala, the very kind of ancient part of your brain, which is not there to think. It is there to react and save your life, to fight or fly or kind of be frozen so that you're not seen. And so the physiological mechanisms that you do as a circuit breaker to bring down you from code red down to a balanced state are physiological. So they'd be exercised because you've flown. So it tells your body that you don't need the cortisol, that you're safe or that you do a meditation or like in my case, kickboxing. Anything that you do and journaling, the combination of breathing, exercise and journaling, even if you only do it five minutes each, is a superpower package to bring you back into balance in your body and then being back in the balance of your body frees you to have the neofrontal cortex that allows you when you're feeling safe to think more clearly to make better decisions to be realistic that you're not going to die if you if um, you get a question wrong that if you you know that you're not going to be shamed and stabbed if you can't find it, retrieve a word so that you then support yourself as an adult, not as a kind of frightened animal in the wild, to trust that you're going to be okay. And then you you don't feel, then that's it. I'm repeating myself.
1: Mm. At the end of the book, interestingly, you put a history, a brief history of families. But all the way through the book is the ways in which our families today have changed and are different and how that impacts upon the kind of problems that people come up against. I just wonder if you could sort of, I mean, overall, do you feel like modern society will come to the specifics of gender, which comes up and frustratingly so, but does the modern world create in your research more problems for families in in today's society?
2: Do you know, I think, I don't know enough historically about the kind of personal stories, but if you read Dickens or novels from times in the past, Victorians or before, I think as human beings, our issues have probably been the same. is that, am I loved? Am I lovable? Am I safe? Am I okay? Am I going to keep the roof over my head and the bread on the table? And for that, we need social connection and we need to be able to have a voice. And we need to believe that we are of value and that we have connection with each other. And I think that's been through millennia. And I think probably every century and every generation, and I'd love to know what the audience think, have their different challenges that they face. Like mine faced the Second World War, and they managed that by surviving and and multiplying and getting on and building, but not emotionally feeling. We now have the luxury to feel because this was more true uh, t- sort of uh, three weeks ago, but we're not under the threat of war in the way that that they were. But I think what's true now is... That it because we don't have the institutions of marriage, we don't have the institute, well, we do have them, but they're not so rigid. The institution of of church and all of those rules, we have many, many choices. And we have, you know, women have much more freedom and can work and parent and partner and be polyamorous. So, all of those choices can feel very exciting and really good. And they can also feel extremely confusing and they can mess with your identity and they can mess with your confidence if you're not kind of completely clear about them and so i I think they're just a different set of complexities than you know i'd much rather be a woman now than a victorian woman stuck at home kind of you know tatting
0: hello it's vas here one of our all-time favorite guests at how-to academy is back Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre order now.
1: Hey there. Yeah, you say we like to believe that age old dilemma of of women bearing the childcare and and all, you know, the majority of that has been solved in the 21st century when half the working population is female, but it has not. And I, I think there are, perhaps you could give some of the examples, but there are so many times that comes up in the families that you talk to that that is the source of so much of the problem, which is that the women feel, you know, resentment or that they've had to deal with so much that the men haven't had to.
2: Yes, and resentment and confusion. So in the Thompson family, this was a, you know, a middle class family. Well, she was middle class now, but she came actually from a working class family. So I worked, they were a fantastic family. And I worked with the the grandmother, the mother and her daughter, who's going to university. So it was based on kind of the reason I was seeing them was sort of empty nest. Is it called syndrome? It can't be a syndrome, empty nest. You say you don't like that term at all. (laughs) It's true. I don't. It can't be a syndrome. Anyway, empty nesting, and she had had a career before she got married, and she'd been brought up as from generations of women who had a been disappointed by men, but had got their sense of value as mothers. That that's where that was their superpower was loving their kids. So although she'd been a um, successful journalist before she had children, she then stopped working altogether. And she actually did love being a parent, but it, the alwaysness of it, the conflict with her husband over it, who was she gonna be now? How was she gonna have confidence in the new iteration of herself? The sense of sadness and like, wanting to hold on to her daughter, but also giving her daughter roots and wings, allowing her daughter to go angry with her husband that he managed to not feel so upset and he managed to have a very successful career. And, you know, she, there is so much complexity in it that I think we all have. And the guilt, the guilt, the guilt that you're not working properly, the guilt that you're not mothering properly, that, you know, all that package.
1: There's a fast I mean there's so many kind of sort of light bulbish moments throughout the book. And Do you one, see your
2: family in it.
1: I mean, I see there's so yes, lots lots of times, and they might be watching, so I have to always be happy by saying but I think that there's a moment where you're talking about the two men who have adopted a child and all the sort of opinion opinions that society brings to them, that weighs them down to, you know, f- all the sort of judgment that's on their shoulders. And one of them sort of says to you, we've realized we need to create and shape our own story. And, and you say, you know, to the reader, sometimes we're too enslaved to thinking there's a narrative we have to fit. And I feel like that's quite a liberating realization in the book, which is that we need to move away in those examples you've just given as women or, or in their example, as um, two men adopting a child, to try and move away from this narrative that society still sort of
2: imposes. I think that's, I mean, that's a wonderful example of it. And, you know, again, an example of the story we tell ourselves is the person we become when we allow ourselves to have a different story and to have that kind of fertile void of wondering, what do I want to be? How do I want to be? What kind of parent am I going to be? You know, one of the great things from them was what research showed, and we saw this together, as the three of us, was that men who adopt a new baby, their physiological system changes. So they have more oxytocin, which is the bonding mother kind of breastfeeding hormone than a normal man would have. So that their wiring adapted so that they could hear more, they were more sensitive. And the, the great thing with them is that they were experimenting Um, And this is what they were talking about with their neighbor was that they didn't have she stayed at home or she did the more of the kind of nappy changing and the equivalent of breastfeeding so that they could create these roles for themselves. But also the judgment, like so when one of them wanted to have Fridays where he worked from home so he could parent more because he was a man, no one really took that seriously. And yet he had this friend who married someone as a woman who was a very successful woman. And the deal was they shared the parenting. And she she said something along the lines of, you just wouldn't believe the stuff he doesn't notice, the stuff he doesn't do. And I didn't sign up for that. And I mean, I think that expression could be kind of shouted throughout the land. And yeah, I think it's really interesting how we can re- Reconfigure ourselves when we don't have fixed roles and norms.
1: And I mean, we've touched a bit on this idea of the, well, you've touched a lot because it's so central to the book, the way that different generations deal with issues, deal with difficulty. And I was so struck in a number of the examples about the extraordinary kind of way in which the younger, People in your in your uh, articulated their feelings. They were often the most mature person in the room, to my mind. The way you told it, I mean, you say the wisdom of youth is a much underrated resource. So perhaps you know when we're looking of of how to do things, we should be looking to that generation and the way they seem to be so much better at talking about their feelings.
2: I think they're much more emotionally intelligent because they've been given it by their parents. To be fair, so I think the the parents can take credit. And I also think they kind of name things that we're ashamed of naming. And we kind of look at them, you know, slightly with disgust, like you're feeling too much, you're saying too much, you're oversharing. But who set the boundary about what's okay and what isn't okay? So there was one example that the Taylor family had been a family that were in real loggerheads. They split 10 years before the two children um, lived with the mum. And again, her as a single mother, 92% of single mothers are women and 60% of them are on the poverty line because they can't work and parent. So they, you know, they carry an enormous burden. And the mum was legitimately furious and, and resentful and fed up with her husband. And he was legitimately furious with his wife, and the, the 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 teenager son who told them they needed to see someone because he'd stormed out at Christmas, and he just said, "Look, we've done this for ten years. It's we've got to do something." And he would sit with his head down like this, so, and when and he'd sometimes look up like that, um, and he wouldn't say anything. And once I asked him, uh, well, his parents were talking and kind of fighting, and I asked him what was happening to him while his parents were in conflict, you know, I've lost him. Um, and actually he used it as, you know, like you can kind of earwig a room next door by listening through the keyhole. So he kept the the video off, but talked through the sessions. And he made the suggestions of how they might communicate better the things they might do to, be, to get it better together. One of the big conflicts, with families that are separated or divorced are these loyalty binds that if the child is with the father and the stepmother they feel like they're being disloyal to their mother and when they're with the mother they feel like they're being disloyal to the father and kind of expanding the understanding so that you have permission to have a bond and a relationship with both sides without feeling that you're betraying the other one.
1: You talk about that as, as the video, because of course, many of these um, case studies came to you in the pandemic. And it's really interesting to see at the beginning, you say that the benefits far outweigh the negatives um, of, of therapy via Zoom.
2: Well, because I would never, I mean, I got six, five generations of a family on a Zoom screen. I got four generations of a family on a Zoom screen. I got the teenager. I would never have got them in my room. At a particular time of day, on a day of the week, never would I have been able to get them together. So it allowed all of us to communicate and be present and hear each other. And I think in some ways people felt safer in their homes. You know, like that young boy, he was in his bedroom, he was in his trackies. Um, It was much less threatening. The daughters of of the mother of the of these 40-year-old three sisters and their dad had died by suicide 40 years before with their mother. You know, one of them lived abroad. They lived miles apart from each other. It gives the possibility of communication, understanding and connection, which I think is incredibly liberating. And I think it's the future. But, you know, I, will, I saw five clients a day in my room. I like seeing people in person. But I do think... It's an, it extends the capacity for people to see therapists and the, and therapists see clients in a way that we haven't had before. I think it is sort of in some level revolutionary.
1: You mentioned at the very beginning the Berger family. I hope I've pronounced that right. Yeah, that's right. And that you had expected, so there's a most devastating story that um, the great-grandmother, I think she's the great-grandmother, you. Um, yeah. tells you, and you went and found them expecting that the trauma from the Holocaust would have passed through the generations. And you mentioned at the beginning, that isn't what you found. I just wonder if you could describe that very powerful story in the book.
2: So what all the research about transgenerational trauma a lot of it originated in israel because of the holocaust survivors and that it gets transferred in multiple ways it gets transferred as i mentioned before epigenetically that if you have high levels of cortisol from trauma which you do if you're constantly on alert that is transferred through the womb to your children and grandchildren but also you know a parent's mental health is what you mirror to your children and their mental health will match the parents' mental health. So a lot of people who survived the Holocaust had, you know, big psychological problems, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, all of those things, and also trauma. And so that they would behave in a particular way around food or around noise, and also a kind of dismissal of feelings because they just survived the most brutal murdering of of, that you could ever imagine. And then their child would complain that they don't want to go to school because they have a headache. So, you know, there was lots of complexity. But trauma and transgenerational trauma is not inevitable. So that Katy had come from a very loving Hungarian family. She was 14 when she went to Auschwitz. So she carried in her a lot of secure and relational bonds. And she was a sparkly, bright-eyed ninety-two-year-old, and she was a sparkly—must have been a sparkly, bright-eyed, fourteen-year-old. Um, and that meant that she was turned by Megula to go to the right, not the left. That she got little scraps of food. She had friends or people that they helped each other in the in the huts. That she—and she, she said—and this is fascinating. I wanted to see what would happen in the end she had hope. And that she got from the confidence of being a loved child. And then she survived and came to England. And she met her husband. And the meaning she made of her trauma was that I survived so that I would love my husband, Isaac, and I would have you children. So she transformed the trauma into a meaning making experience. But what she transferred to her children wasn't trauma. It was a tough act to follow and also lots of anxiety so if you have an exceptional parent although she has huge humility this woman she was amazing she also was extraordinary that she survived so her children looked up at her like she was very special which she is but somehow I think if you look at your parent or your grandparent as as very special you inevitably become less special But also they would beat themselves up if they complained about being cold or failing the exam, or they didn't give themselves permission to be who you are, because an experience of trauma that can give you post-traumatic growth, which Catty has, you have to have the lived experience. If you're outside of it and observing it, you don't get the learning because it's not your experience.
1: I mean, it's a fascinating one of the stories. They all are, and I'm wary that... Somehow, very, very quickly, my time has, is, is sort of slowly coming to an end. But I, I think oh, there's lots I would have loved to want to ask you, but people will find it in the pages of the book. But I do want to just ask about the when does parenting end question that feeds into so many of your stories. And this question of trying to hold on and the importance of letting go and how to get it right. I mean, I think that you're exploring it all the way through, but I wonder what your advice is to parents struggling with that. And also if you could sort of incorporate that idea of it's what you do that matters, not what you say, how you act and how you behave.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll respond to that bit first, is that you may say to your children or even your grandchildren, I want you to be happy. All I want is for you to be happy. But if what you model is being pretty damn miserable and super anxious, and never happy or only happy when everything is right. You know, you're a perfectionist, you know, once a year or once every five years. That is what your children will learn. Whereas if you model good enough that, you know, you can ride the difficult things and you can be upset and you can make mistakes and you have this rupture and repair in your families that you have a fight you know where you love most you hate most and fight most and make your worst mistakes but if and we will always fight and one of my kind of touchstones i have 12 touchstones at the end is to fight productively so if you learn to fight productively as a family you kind of repair after the fight and you're stronger as a family and you know, I think that's what we want to model, imperfect, good enough families. Parenting never ends, as me as a grandmother. But what matters in your parenting, I think, is first of all being self-compassionate, but also to adapt and develop as the relationship changes. So we are wired to adapt as human beings, evolutionary but we don't like change. That was what a lot of my last book was about, living losses, that we block change because we fear the unknown and we'd rather kind of stick to the rigid way that I am as a parent and that you do as you're told than kind of recognise adulthood and maturity and let them be themselves, let them be different. If they're going to vote for a different political party, if they're going to be different to you, allow the difference. And that means adapting yourself. So adapting as an adult parent to adult children involves pain it involves the pain of loss of that you aren't the mothership anymore or the fathership or the parentship you step away and let them build their own ship and if you let them go they will come back because they will want to have that connection with you Um, and so if you're lucky you then get grandchildren who are the kind of biggest gifts your children can give you and the relationship continues but it is always a a continuing relationship of change and allowing change and that we need to be self-compassionate and support ourselves to manage the weather of change so that we can kind of expand and let go and they will come back.
1: I'm so glad that in your answer you brought up fight productively because those steps at the end all of them are very helpful but I feel that that is something that so many families would do very well to take on board because it's that sort of suppression of the letting their feelings out and discussing things that people do in in your sessions and that people should be just doing naturally that can be so helpful I agree <laughs> We're on the same page that but um I just better now invite the audience to ask your questions Julia um, I'm sure you have many and of course uh, at the end of this in about just over uh, in, in about 15 minutes time subscribers are able to join the separate session with Julia and that's on your watch um, list and you can uh, subscribe and come to that and that will be with cameras and you'll be able to sort of talk amongst yourselves um, and with Julia. So Ellen and Julia says how do you suggest couples navigate parenting when one partner has been in therapy for a number of years but the other hasn't? And it affects both of their outlooks and ways of dealing with things, which comes back to this, you know, importance, I suppose, that weaves all the way through the book of trying to do things as a family when it comes to therapy.
2: I mean, I've got two answers. One may not be achievable. So, I mean, my, I I think couple relationships need maintenance as your car needs maintenance. So that when you're parenting, you know, from being kind of lovers to committed relationship to the biggest commitment of having children together, that is a massive amount of change in the relationship. And so my suggestion, which may not be possible, would be that the couple see a therapist together and talk about parenting together so that they can kind of get on a collaborative parenting where they can allow the difference between them, but agree together what are the priorities that they both can align with. I think if that isn't possible, I would suggest that they, I think often the most simple way of kind of looking at differences would be kind of walking and talking and trying to look at their parenting styles. You know, they both of their parenting came from their parents. So what are the things within those parenting relationships that they had that are the principles, the values that they hold most dear? What are the things that really matter? And look at values and principles rather than minutiae of bedtimes and whether they should be having carrot puree at six months or eight months. Because that doesn't matter. What matters is your attitudes and your beliefs and your ways of being.
0: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson. Is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Um, I think, and they're
1: always such insightful questions as ever from the how-to audience but um Lara's questions you know what is your view of emotionally immature parents who don't have the capacity to make change you know or the will to change And, and I'm sure emotionally immature you know has a lot of a wide range of kind of connotations but
2: I think you need to hold both I mean it isn't ideal so on one hand I think it's like grieving and acknowledging and letting yourself feel the, the loss of not having the ideal parent on the one hand and kind of naming that. And on the other, kind of recognising they are your parents within the limits that they have. And so kind of hold both side by side, because often we want to kind of have all of one or all of the other. I'm going to cut them off completely. Or, you know, I've got, they, I've got to adapt myself to fit, you know, my childlike parent, which, whichever one they are. And actually, I think if you can hold those two conflicting ideas that you're angry and sad and the feeling of loss that they they're immature and also that they are the parent that you've got. And that's a unique relationship. It's a unique bond. And there may be strengths in it and things that they have and maybe calibrate how you spend time with them and what you emotionally invest in them. So if you know that you have a very immature parent, don't ask them your most complex, deep question that you want wisdom from because you're unlikely to get it. I mean, you know your parent as well as you know yourself. So match getting your needs met by the parent that you have in front of you rather than setting yourself up to be permanently disappointed for the parent that you wish that you had.
1: Actually, on a very similar in a very similar sort of vein to that question. This isn't a question, it's a comment, but it's really interesting because it's sort of where you started. And I think many people probably of a certain generation have this feeling, Jeremy says, I loved my mother and father, but I never really liked them. I felt they were cold, distant, and too formal. They are both long gone, but I now realize they were good enough parents and were simply products of their upbringing, as are we all. I expect many people who've lost their parents, in the same way you do at the beginning of the book are are sort of coming to terms with that and accepting that was just the way things were and sort of embracing that, you know, I suppose we've changed as a society.
2: We have changed. And I think for Jeremy, it is a welcome release to forgive and kind of love the parents you had. And, you know, it is exhausting hating your dead parents. You know, it saps your energy. It's like swallowing poison, hoping they die when they're dead. And so to kind of come to terms and accommodate them for who they were within their limits of why they were like they were, because they had to defend themselves against all sorts of terrors, which is why they were cut off and cold. You know, the the bigger the front, the bigger the back. So the more people are defended and armoured and putting on, the more they're shielding against their fears, their anxieties, their vulnerabilities.
1: Um, I'm going to... Um, oh no, I was about to sneak in one of my own questions, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I am going to just quickly sneak in this question because I think it's really important. And it's a, It's another one of those quotes in the book that really I, I think would resonate with so many people, which is about how we live with our families, many of us, or there are families, so there's the assumption that we... Uh, know them inside out that there's a certain relationship between families but so often our families you know we know so little I can't find the exact quote but it's it's along those lines and we live in a family and not know our family is what you say and I think that so many people would relate to that and I suppose there's therapy to talk about that to get to know each other I, I expect that's one of the ways but what else are the kind of ways in which we can ensure that it's not too late to get to know our family? I think that's one of the key things that this book makes you think about.
2: I think the sort of secret weapon of communication is listening. So begin to be curious about a particular member or a number of members of your family. And be curious with a kind, with a sort of kindness. like find out one of the things that is often within a family, and I find a lot in the case studies, was that the four people were in a room at, the day, at a particular date and time, but their experience of it and what they took away from it and the belief that they had from it, guilt or shame or positive, would have been their own version. So maybe go back at a particular intense time in your family and ask your parent or your sibling. I think siblings, by the way, are very underrated how they influence our psychology. And ask them what their experience of that was. And don't try and put them right and tell them, no, it wasn't that, she didn't say that, grandmother wasn't that. But listen to their version and understand their experience of it. And then tell them your own, swap.
1: Sibling relationships, I would say, are probably one of the most complicated of relationships that exist. Um, And I wonder, did you learn anything, have any sort of, particular insight through this book into those complexities?
2: I mean, a, thir- a third of all sibling relationships have n- virtually none or no contact with each other. And a third are very close and a third are kind of in between. I think what I, the big thing, which isn't news to anybody, is, is the, the rivalry for love and attention. And if you're brought up in an environment of scarcity for love and attention rather than abundance for love and attention. You need to elbow each other out the way and kind of put them down to raise yourself up. And you may do that by being mean. You may do that by having tantrums. You may do that by being a perfectionist and winning all the exams and the prizes. We'll all find our own mechanism, but all of that will create disconnection with your siblings. And, that has a, an enormous impact on everybody in the family. And there are small ways,
1: again, in which the, your case studies, just the smallest ways that repair those
2: implications. Yeah, it's so powerful. I mean, most of my sessions, and I hope people read the book to see it for themselves, and let's face it, six 50-minute sessions, is isn't even a complete box set of a Netflix series. <laughs> they transformed their relationships. I am not joking. Transform them just by sitting in their a, in a separate rooms on the Zoom screen, hearing each other and being willing to hear each other and feeling the discomfort of hearing things they didn't want to hear, um, but bearing with it because I facilitated it, so they was, I made it safe for them.
1: Um, time probably just for a couple more questions, just to say that Jeremy, who um, said that about um, his parents and you, you said, you know, it's like a poison. And he says, thank you, so encouraging to hear your answer. Forgiveness is such a relief and allows me to move on. I always get quite emotional doing interviews with you, Julia. But someone also uh, asks, and I think this is a really good question, we talked a little bit about that balance of overparenting and letting them go, but from the perspective of the child and the adult child, if a parent has not ad- adapted to change, has been unable to stop, step away from being the mothership, what do you suggest the adult child does? And I think that's a really important question, so thank you to the person who's asked that.
2: I mean... If you as the adult child don't step off the mothership and create your own ship with your partner, which is what I'm assuming um, you're talking about, it is very difficult, and the research shows it, for you to invest and create a secure bond with your partner and create your own ship. Because if you're constantly pulled back To the directives to the time to the attention to the energy of your parent you will create a horrible dynamic with your partner so unfortunately it requires tough love in a way of saying to the parent i really love you i really want to see you and i am doing this because you you know everyone listening to this knows that you can't change another person But if you change your behavior and do it kindly and with love and compassion, it can develop and change behaviors in those around you. It's not guaranteed, but it can do. Whereas if you cut and run and you say, F off, parents, you're too difficult, you're too demanding, I'm going off with my partner, then you create this awful rupture. And to remember that, you know, so Archie, who had to cut um, ties with his mum, he talked about her all the time. We can never leave our family of origin. They're in us, in our memories, they're in us, in our genes and in our bodies. You know, the body remembers, the body holds the score. So my belief, and you can disagree with me, this is subjective, I'd rather have an imperfect, not seeing them very often relationship with me. All members of my family than total cut. It's very, it's very expensive psychologically.
1: Now, I am um, on instructions to make sure that I do end this on time, despite the fact that we could go on for hours and have so many questions for you. But there, as, I, as I mentioned, some people who are here now are moving on into an, another room. If you're a subscriber to the How To Academy, um, you can um, have that option and it's on your watch list. And um, I hope that you have a wonderful time doing that. But uh, for, for my part um, and for the others who are watching, thank you so much to everyone for joining. I'm sure you'll agree, it's such a thought provoking and, and incredibly um, thoughtful discussion. And Julia, thank you so much. And thank you very, very much for this brilliant book, which I'm, I'm excited for those of you who haven't read it that you have this in store. Thank you.
2: I, I really enjoyed it. And thank you to everyone who's listening. And um, do find me on Instagram. I'm Julia Salmon, MBE. And my book, as Hannah has said, Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. is out tomorrow. It's publication day tomorrow. Happy publication. Terrifying and exciting. But thank you, everyone. And I hope we'll be in touch.
0: This week's show starred Julia Samuel and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Dana Altcoltz and myself. And our editor is John Daugherty. Julia's previous episode of the podcast is available wherever you're listening to this, and her new book, Every Family Has a Story, is out now wherever good books are sold. Psychology is one of the biggest themes in our rolling program, so if you enjoyed this episode, do visit us at howtoacademy.com, where you'll find upcoming talks and conversations on subjects like anxiety, happiness, motivation, imagination, and more. Until next time... I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.